0: Hey everybody, it's Jackie, and as you may be aware, I took a couple weeks off from podcasting because there was just a lot going on with the shootings in Buffalo, in Uvalde, and the news coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention about the suppression of abuse reporting, I just needed to take a moment. But I'm back, and I think the last time we chatted, we chatted about mothering. And I think I said, I've been pondering a little bit more about mothering. And so today, I want to share with you a couple things that I've been noodling on. That's what we're talking about today, mothering. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off the record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women at work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome back. As most of you may be aware, I have three grown children. Hunter is 31, Hampton is 30, and Madison is 28. And I really like who they are, and I like who they have made me become. But I didn't grow up thinking or wanting to be a mom. Shocker, I know, not all women want babies. But I got pregnant in a van because Steve and I were traveling the country for a year And, well, there's not a whole lot to do in a van at night, so I got pregnant. And so there we were, having a baby. And I was like, well, once we've started, we might as well keep going. So by the time I was 28, I had three kids under the age of three and a half. I'd basically give birth, nurse for 10 months, and bam, pregnant the next month. It was like clockwork. And I remember thinking at age 28, oh my God, at this rate, I'm going to have over 20 kids. And remember, I never really wanted to be a mom. And I have to be honest, mothering didn't come naturally to me. I had to discipline myself to be a good mom. And I think I have been that, a good mom. But we'd actually have to ask my kids to confirm. I was a new mom at the same time I became a new Christian. And I didn't know how to do or be either of those But I quickly learned in my faith circle that mothering was the holy grail. Pastors from the pulpit would say things like, and I'm quoting, there is no higher calling than being a godly mother. And I had Christian friends who told me that a woman's purpose is to mother. And by the way, in case you're wondering, that's not true. It's not a woman's purpose. Scripture says our purpose is to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7 states, For all who cl- claim me as their God will come for, I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. And Romans 11:36 36 proclaims, For everything comes from him and everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. Now, glory is uh, a hard concept to get our hands around because we can't go to the grocery store and buy it in a box. But basically, and I'm summarizing, minimizing, glorify means to reflect who God is in such a way that the world wants to know who he is and bring honor to his name. So what that basically means is if you happen to be a soccer player, a law clerk, a janitor, or a mother, you should do those things in such a way that you bring honor and glory to God. That's what we were made to be and do. And there's angst in that, right? Because we women know we fall short in the mothering department. We often feel inadequate and unsure and unsteady. I can't tell you how many times I said to my oldest child, Hunter, I have no idea how to do this. Like, whether it was like the first time they had a dance, you know, a a mixed gender dance. And all the women in my Christian circles were like, don't let them go to dances and dance with the girls because they look up into everybody's shorts, skirts and take pictures. I was like freaking out, like what's going to happen at the sixth grade dance, you know? And so I didn't know, can Hunter go? Can he go? I don't know, you know? And I said to Hunter, I don't know. I've never like done parenting of a boy that's going to a sixth grade dance. And I went through that when it came to driving cars and going to college and dealing with the first breakup that they had and the death of a friend. I didn't know how to do those things. And quite frankly, now they're in their 30s, I don't really know how to mother older children very well either. Like there's not a lot of resources out there. I can tell you, uh, you can't do it the same way you mothered your children at three or 13. I can tell you that. I remember one night when I was out to dinner with friends, Hunter called and he said, Mom, the police are here and they're looking to arrest Hampton. What should I do? And I'm like, I have no idea. When they handed out all of those books to us young mothers about how to parent, like there was not a chapter in there that said, hey, when your 20 something gets arrested, here's what you do. Have you ever noticed there's a whole lot of chapters missing in those books? We don't always know what to do, do we? And then there are all these social expectations from our culture and, quite frankly, our faith communities about what it means to be a good or godly woman, mother. Like that pastor who said, there is no higher calling than being a godly mother. He followed up that statement, by the way, with a story about this man that came to visit him. And this man who came to visit him shared how his wife was a titan in the industry. And then the man turned and said to the pastor, what does your wife do for a living? And this pastor, he even admitted it, very snarkily (laughs) responded that his stay-at-home wife, quote, unquote, gives birth to and shapes eternal human beings into the image of God. Yeah, He said that publicly in front of 10,000 people, sitting in his sanctuary. Now think about what he's communicating to the women and men sitting there, listening to, quote unquote, this man of authority. Mothering, well, actually we would even say mothering and being a stay-at-home mother, is the ideal. She's the ideal Christian woman. By the way, we probably need a quick history lesson about now. There's a whole lot to this idea of the man is the breadwinner who works outside of the home and the woman is the homemaker. That, by the way, those terms breadwinner and homemaker are fairly new ideas. Quick history lesson. Prior to Industrial Revolution, most people lived in an agrarian society where the homes were the economic unit. You can, you can see that, right? It's where shoes were made and clothes were sewn and food was produced. But during this time in history, during the Industrial Revolution, the words like breadwinner and homemaker didn't exist until the Industrial Revolution, right? Because work was life and life was work. But then the Industrial Revolution occurred and there was a huge shift in our culture, huge shift in migration. People moved from the farms to the cities. Between 1870 and 1920, 11 million Americans migrated to cities, where economic production shifted from the home, you got it, to the factories. So we had men, women, and children, that's why we have children labor laws today, because back then we had men, women, and children working in the factories and the mills. And for the majority of people, approximately 90%, a dual income was needed in order to put food on the table and keep roof over their heads. So, one of the byproducts of the Industrial Revolution was this newfound wealth, the birth of what we now call the middle class. And at that time, only about 10% of the population were considered middle class or upper class. But today, you know, when someone rises to a new level of wealth, they often show it by what? Think about what we do when we want people to know or we get more and more money. We buy a bigger, bigger house, right? We might put a pool back there, buy a boat, get a lake house, a really expensive car. That's the way we communicate status, wealth. But during the industrial revolution, status was made by being able to have your wife stay at home, to have her not work in the factories anymore. So out of the middle class, Came these new definitions, these social norms for the role of men and women. It's technically called the doctrine of separate spheres, where income production was exclusively the husband's task and homemaking exclusively the wife's. There were sermons presented and women's magazines and literature, religious literature, that, that helped reinforce these ideals. A woman's place in society, at least for the 10% don't forget that, was in the home. The only problem was that much of the creative work done in the home, such as cooking, sewing, canning, was now being done in the factories. And so there's a whole lot of idle time and limited ways to feel and be productive. And let's be honest, women were called to live on purpose, to work, to be productive, just like men. So what women did is they took their energy, their time, and their skills, and they devoted it to motherhood. This is when mothering became a profession. Child-rearing experts popped up all over the place with this new literature about how to raise great kids. Raising kids became, quote-unquote, something women could study and become perfect at with the help of the experts. So you might be interested to know, this is when families started celebrating their, their children's birthday parties in all these elaborate ways. This is also the era when fathers become less involved in parenting. Fatherhood was minimized as motherhood became the holy grail. Knowing history helps us, doesn't it? it helps us realize a few things about the things that we've been taught social expectations both in our culture and in our churches i'm going to give you a few minutes to percolate on some of that historical information and how that has transformed the way we see and talk and expect women to mother Well, like I said, knowing history helps, doesn't it? One of the things I realized, I reflected upon knowing this information, was that I struggled to mother because I did it alone. I did it in isolation. And looking back, I realized I don't think we were supposed to do that. We we were supposed to live in a tribal, more tribal clannish kind of environment where there's cousins and sisters and grandmas and aunts and mothers and dads and brothers where people were around. It really does take a village to raise children. And mothers were not making mothering their profession. They had to work in the home outside the home in order to actually survive, right? So they took their kids along with them and picked crops and churned butter and planted fields. I really believe that we weren't intended to raise our children as individual, independent beings. And I think that's why a a lot of us women feel the weightiness and the strain of mothering. Because the truth is, we do a whole lot of it alone, and I don't think we were meant to. The other thing is that this abbreviated history lesson also helps me see that sometimes the messages we hear from our faith communities aren't as biblical as they once seemed. See, being a mother is good work, but stating that it's God's highest calling for women, which means stay-at-home mom, that's not biblical. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not unbiblical. I'm not saying you're wrong if you have chosen to stay at home. I'm just saying we can't say, thus says the Lord about it. When I heard this pastor say this unbiblical statement, along with the story, I thought to myself, well, mothering is a high calling, but what he was inferring is that the mother, who's a Titanic in her industry, couldn't possibly be raising her kids in the way of the Lord as a stay-at-home mom. I mean, that was his inference. And I wondered how that impacted the women in the audience. Because we know in America between 73 to 81% of women who have children under the age of 18 work outside the home. So how did those women who worked outside the home feel hearing that from their pastor, who they give authority to? And what about the women who aren't married? She's wondering, is she even a fully woman yet? Does the church even recognize her this way? And what does it do to women who are married but without children? Maybe by choice or maybe because they can't. See, we women, we experience angst around this idea of mothering, don't we? Yes, yes we do. Recently, a friend who has young children said to me, Jackie, you have amazing kids. By the way, her words, not mine, although I would agree. And so she asked me, why do you rarely talk about mothering? It seems like you've done it well. Why wouldn't you share with us some of the things you've done? And her question is really valid. And there are multiple reasons why I haven't talked about mothering. Um, And one of them is because I think we overemphasized women's identity being so tightly tied to motherhood, as if that's her only identity. And I think that can be part of a woman's work, part of her identity, but I wanted to expand our view of women according to what I think Jesus sees us as. But lately, I'm wondering if never teaching on mothering or very rarely, if maybe I threw the baby out with the bathwater, I'm learning some new things about mothering and about Jesus being called mother. I know, sounds so anathema. In the New Testament, Jesus called God Father, didn't he? We all know that. So we call God Father. Interesting to know, there's very few references to God as Father in the Old Testament. It's really a New Testament thing that got picked up in culture during Second Temple, that's neither here nor there. The point is Jesus calls him father, so we call him father. And I would say that's good and right. What we do need to know is father is a metaphor, and metaphors use one thing to explain another. So God is father or mother or door or shepherd or rock. Those are things that we're trying to identify, saying we're using this one thing to try to explain something that's hard to explain. But we have to be careful when we use a metaphor that we recognize it can, can only go so far when comparing itself to the divine. In other words, it, it can't possibly capture all of who God is. Okay, so that's the, we've had a history lesson, now we've had a literature lesson. <laughs> okay, God the Father is a metaphor. Can we change the metaphor? Can we seek God the Mother? I was taught no. Biblical metaphors have authority. They can't be changed. But I'm not so sure about that anymore. I was in my class on gender and theology at Northern Seminary, and we were reading all these different scholars, Christian scholars, who were asking this question. And one scholar that I read, her name is Julian of Norwich. She wrote back in the 14th and 15th century in England um, when women weren't educated or literate. In fact, I think her work is the oldest work we have to confirm like the, the first writer in English to be identified with certainty that it's a woman's writing. And she wrote this thing called the Revelations of Divine Love. And by the way, if you don't know who Gillian of Norwich is, it's okay. Turns out I had two seminary degrees and I had never read her work either. <clears> hmm, <throat> we should ask. She did an extensive work on the Trinity, the Imago Dei, and God's love. And one of the most striking features about Julian of Norwich's work was her witness that God was not only father, but also mother. She literally called Jesus mother because he gave birth twice, she said, once at creation. Right? John 1.10, Colossians, 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 Colossians 1.15 tell us that he was there and instrumental in creating creation. He birthed the world. And then he comes in a womb and is birthed in the incarnate God in flesh, and he births us, right? This is what he says to Nicodemus in chapter John chapter three, you must be born again. Now I got to be honest with you, this is the conversation we're having at seminary that God can be called mother, and I'm feeling a bit odd and a bit uneasy because I was taught that's feminism and that's bad, 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 a slippery slope. But it turns out that Julian, who is highly respected church mother of ours, was not eccentric or unorthodox either. St. Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th and 12th century wrote prayers and used theology, imaging Jesus as a hen protecting her young, as Jesus as mother. And there's places in Scripture where God is depicted as mother, like in H- Hosea 11, 3, 4, where it says, God, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. It's mothering. Isaiah 13.8 describes God as mother, a mother bear. And Deuteronomy 32.11 and 12 describes him as a mother eagle. And Deuteronomy 32.18 says God gives birth. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, Scripture says. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah 66.13 is depicted, God's depicted as a comforting mother. Isaiah 49, 15, as a nursing mother. Isaiah 42, 14, a woman in labor. Isaiah, or Psalm 131, 2, again, a woman in labor. And then we have Jesus's words in Matthew 22 and Luke 13, where Jesus is described as a mother hen. These are just a few areas in which God is depicted, imaged, metaphored in ways that, well, mother. So let me ask you this. What difference does it make if I call God the father or if I call God the mother? Can I call God both? I don't know. You tell me. Is it possible that God as mother, as the metaphor mother, helps us explain and maybe understand the mystery of God in ways we can't or don't if we only have God as father? So let me ask you, if you took a few minutes and let your brain imagine for a bit, God as mother, what difference to you would that make? For a long time, I've been working on understanding what it means to have a female body, particularly as a Christ follower. And the reason that is, you already know, is because of, I was told that my body my body's worth was about being thin, sexy, and young, and as a Christian, to be married with kids and to nurture every living creature, creature around me. And in her book, Motherhood, Dr. Carnes, who's a prof at Baylor, writes this For centuries, Christian texts exploring humanness have come from men reflecting on their own flesh. Generation after generation of Christians have spoken of God with masculine pronouns and titles that have ossified into literal reference. Women and children have remained largely absent from the talk of divinity and humanity. But what if their lives were taken as significant sites for theological work? What if their bodies were seen as revelatory of human life as it encounters and fails to encounter divine presence? What if the most influential reflection of humanity in the Western world centered not on the struggles of a man's body, but on those of a woman or a child? Yes, it's a a profound question, one that I haven't been allowed to see very often in my faith community because it is very masculine. So what does my female body say about humanity and about God? I suspect the answer to that question would give rise to women with dignity to their bodies in ways we've never experienced ever before. So, I got into this conversation with my daughter about this, right? I said to her, Madison, what do you think makes mother different from father? Aren't you so glad you're not my children? Just imagine the things they have to endure. (laughs) In fact, Hampton's been living with us for a couple weeks or a couple months and Steve was in Africa. He finally calls dad and says, dad, you've got to come home. Mom wakes up in the morning and she's got all these things on her mind and she's just popping off and I just want to rest. So, (laughs) Just be thankful you're not in my house for coffee in the morning. So Madison, what do you think is the difference between mother from father? And we went through the typical list that we've been taught about what makes fatherhood and what makes motherhood. Like she's nurturing. Okay, is he not? No, dads can nurture. Okay, how about a provider? Is he the provider? Yeah, but so is she. Okay, what about protector? Do only fathers protect? Nope, mothers protect too. In fact, did you know this? That hormone called oxytocin, the love hormone in the body, it, it creates more care and nurturing mammals if they have more of it in their body, right? So oxytocin, oxytocin, I'm not saying it right, just go with me, decreases aggression in a mother's body overall with one exception, in defense of her young For mothers, rage is a part of love. It is a biological force that protects that which is loved. Okay, so what is the distinction then? Now, I have to say, I full-heartedly align with Dorothy Sayer on this. She's a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and she is correct, I believe, in saying that women and men are more alike than any other creature. And that was the point God was making to man when he said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a suitable helper. And we would expect God to make a woman next. That should be what follows, but he doesn't. He has man run around and name the animals. Now, naming is a way of identifying, right? Like, I'm, this is who you are, and this is who you are, and this is who you are. And every time he names, identifies a creature, he recognizes they're not like him. And he needs someone to be like him in order for him to even know himself. We know this for a fact today that we learn in community, right? A baby develops, uh, development is dependent on their interaction with their, with others. And we know that when someone listens to us and gets us, our brain waves between the two people literally sink. That's why you feel connected. That's why we even fall in love. So I want to be clear Women are more than mothers, but we are also mothers. And motherhood, or at least our body's potential to carry birth and nurse, is a distinction. It's something men can't do. So what revelations about humanity and God does my pro- baby-producing body reveal? And this is where Dr. Karn's work comes in for me. She writes about this very thing. She t- tells this story about how a midwife warned her to be sure to eat plenty of grams of calcium because her body would take calcium from her bones and give it to the baby. So here she is going about normal life when inside her, and this is her statement, bones were hollowing themselves out to help her baby grow. It was a bizarre and beautiful thought. Who is this calcium consumer inside me, she said, and who is this bone sac- sacrificer I have become? And here's the part that's so profound. She says, I gave my blood and bones, though not because I chose this sacrifice. Still, my gift is a faint echo, a sign of Christ's gifts. We do not choose to send calcium through our bones or to make these sacrifices of care. Our body simply does it. Our body cares for the vulnerable one within us as if charity were the grain of the universe as if charity were the grain of the universe. It's as if God wanted to tell the world that he's charitable through the female pregnant body. It's as if God wanted to demonstrate that he infused creation, including the female pregnant body, with the capacity to extend charity Just normally, this is how we are to relate to other human beings. We are to be charitable. Let that sink in. Our bodies, our female bodies, our pregnant female bodies declare that truth about God. Another revelation we see through pregnant female bodies is mercy. I never knew this. But this is so cool. It seems that fetal cells that cross the placenta into the woman's body stay there for years after her pregnancy. And though they were found in many different tissues in a woman's body, they seem particularly drawn to sites of injury. Let that sink in for a minute. Like mom giving her calcium, the baby is giving cells to heal mom's injuries. And from this knowledge, Karin says to her baby in her womb, Your body cells practiced merciful care even before you knew what mercy was. She also goes on to say that she is godlike to the baby in her womb. Listen to her words I was your first image of divinity. My body was your cosmos, the source that filled your needs and sustained your life. From your dark and watery perspective, I was your creator. In the beginning, I gave you a universe that was formless and void, and darkness covered your face. You knew me as a voice, a breath that vibrated over the waters of my womb. In the beginning, we were as creator and creature, playing out the story of Genesis. You were the God who comes to me in Christ, needing food and drink and shelter. The Christ who comes as a stranger, patient and prisoner. Whatever is done for the least of these, Jesus preaches in the Gospel of Matthew, is done unto Christ. Jesus in this passage imagines himself both as the glorious returning Lord and the Lord hidden in the least of these. And who was less than you in my womb? You were utterly the vulnerable one, the one whose life depended hourly on my hospitality. Little one, least of these, you were Christ to me. I love this concept, the idea that the pregnant female body helps us see God's care for the vulnerable. Vulnerability, as Bre- Brene Brown tells us, it, it means to being open to woundedness. And Andy Crouch argues that vulnerability is part of God's character. We actually see it in our creation story. God gives his creatures, who he creates, the freedom to say, no God he gives his creatures the ability to wound him. And we see vulnerability in Jesus, right? He's vulnerable in Mary's womb, totally dependent. And we see his vulnerability again on the cross. Now, vulnerability requires hospitality. I love what Karn said, Mary's womb was hospitable. In antiquity, um, there was an ethic of hospitality that was crucial for people's existence. I think today we think, you know, you're being so hospitable if you have somebody over for pizza and soda pop or something, but that is totally not what hospitality meant in antiquity. Back then, if a traveler was to make it back home alive, he'd have to rely on strangers for provision and protection and care. And we see this truth, this ethic of hospitality throughout scripture, Genesis 18, that's when um, the men came to Abraham's tent. We see it in Genesis 19, that's when Sodom and Gomorrah, all the men in the city wanted to have sex with the strangers that came in town. We see it in Leviticus 19, we see it in Jesus' words in Matthew 25, just to name a few. Our bodies, our bodies, female pregnant bodies, declare to the world that God cares for the vulnerable and it declares to us as humans, is that we need to be hospitable to the vulnerable. That's what's happening. That's what's being expressed about our God through the female body. Carnes also spoke on how a mother images God in showing the way of suffering um, accompanies love. So this idea that suffering and love, they go together. And here's what she says. As your mother... My attempts to give you too much, to take away your pain, or to absorb the suffering of the world so that you will never see it, these can be attempts at playing God in a way that God does not even play God. God does not clear the world of suffering for us. God wants us to suffer, survive suffering without being defeated by it. This is what I want to help you do too. To suffer the way of love is to be willing to suffer, and to suffer the way of love as a parent is Also, to be willing to let you, my child, suffer. I so resonated with her tension in this part of the book. Um, I too have wanted to protect my kids from any kind of hurt or pain. And I love that she's really honest here, like God is honest. Jesus did say in this world, you will have suffering. Suffering is part of our world, it's a fact. We can't ignore it, and as much we as we would like to, we can't always stop it. Recently, I read something about grief being a price—the price a price of love. Loving someone means that one day there will be grieving; they will leave you, or you will leave them. The more you love, the more you grieve. Loving someone also means grieving with them. It means letting their pain and the loss bleed into your own heart. Think about that. It means letting their pain and the loss bleed into your own heart. And I think this is the meaning that Genesis is talking about in Genesis 3.16 at the fall, where it says that woman will have pain in childbirth. It's definitely physical pain, but it's also this long lasting pain, this ache, this bleeding of our own heart that we have for our kids, especially when they suffer. The thing I've learned, having gift, a gifted child like Hampton, was that some things can't be fixed. As a mom, I wanted to fix all the things that weren't good, or best, or healthy, or you know, keep them from anything that was bad. And I had this gifted child. And he's off the charts in so many ways. And I learned early on, some things can't be fixed. They can only be carried. And I have a younger sister who's coming to terms with that very same thing. She can solve just about every problem in the universe, and I'm not kidding. But she has an adopted son, and in vitro, he was exposed to things that altered things for him forever. She advocates for him like crazy. He is so, so lucky to have her as his mom. But she's aware there's some things that can't be fixed. They can only be carried Carrying it is weighty. It's an ache. It's a bleeding heart. And sometimes it's grief. And if you're a mother, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Throughout scriptures, we have stories of moms who have grieved because of the hard stuff that happens. We have Moses' mother. Think about that. A mother who lived under systemic sin of slavery she was so desperate, she placed him in a basket and pushed him off into the river, not knowing whether he would live or die. We have Jesus' mom. Just imagine how she must have felt when she dedicated Jesus at the temple. And Simon comes up to her and says, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. And then listen to what he says. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. He says to Mary, the day she's dedicating her baby, a sword will pierce your very soul. I had three kids dedicated at church and I got to tell you, it was all lovely and hopeful and inspiring. There was none of this and and a sword is going to pierce your soul. But I have experienced what they mean by that, haven't you? I have felt somewhat pierced at times. There's been times I could barely breathe because of the weight of grief I felt for my kids. And if you're a mother, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mothers, the more we love, the more we grieve. It's in the Bible, it's all around us, and it's in us. I think about the mothers of those killed in Uvalde and in Buffalo, and the mothers of the 700 plus cases of abuse covered up by the CBC, SBC, sorry. I'm about to cry, so I have to pull it in here. Think about the moms in Ukraine and Russia. I think about the moms that approached my husband when he was in South Sudan this past month, pleading, for him to take their children back to the United States. They just were willing to give up their kids so that they could have life. It's awful, isn't it? Mothering tells us that suffering happens and it's accompanied by love. And Jesus shows us that too. The cross teaches us that suffering is not the final word. The cross extends a hope that is so near despair because it is willing to pass through the possibility of despair towards new life. That's what we can count on now or in the future. I like how Brian Zahan says this about the cross. The defining moment of the cross, Jesus defines what God is really like. God is love, co-suffering, all-forgiving, sin-absorbing, never-ending love. God is not like Kafat. Caiaphas, sacrificing a goat. God is not like Pilate, enacting justice by violence. God is like Jesus, absorbing, loving, and forgiving. And with that, I think I'm going to close out. For all you mothers, I'm here for you. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.